Lesson 9 for November 24 through to 30, ready for teaching on November 31, The Most Convincing Proof, Sabbath afternoon, November 24. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as broken human beings who have the opportunity of salvation through Jesus. And as we open your word this week, we ask you that you will bless us, your Holy Spirit, to come be with us, enlighten our minds, that your word will speak to us about what we need as individuals, as families, as communities, as churches. Bless us each one, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 11, verses 51 and 52. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Let's read that again, John 11 verses 51 and 52. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Last week we studied how unity is made visible through a common message, centred on Jesus as Saviour and on the truths of Scripture to be emphasised in the time of the end. We are who we are because of the message that God has given us and the calling we have to spread it to the world. This week, we focus on the visible unity of the church in its expression of the day-to-day lives of Christians and the mission of the church. According to Jesus, the church does not simply proclaim God's message of salvation and reconciliation. The unity of the church itself also is an essential expression of that reconciliation. In a world surrounded by sin and rebellion, the church stands as a visible witness to the saving work and power of Christ. Without the oneness and solidarity of the church in its common witness, the saving power of the cross would hardly be apparent in this world. Ellen White writes in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 5, page 1148, Unity with Christ establishes a bond of unity with one another. This unity is the most convincing proof to the world of the majesty and virtue of Christ and of his power to take away sin. Sunday, November 25, Under the Cross of Jesus Like many other spiritual blessings God gives His people, church unity also is a gift of God. Unity is not a human creation through our efforts, good works and intentions. Fundamentally, Jesus Christ creates that unity through His death and resurrection. As we appropriate by faith his death and resurrection through baptism and forgiveness of our sins, as we join in common fellowship, and as we spread the three angels' messages to the world, 
we are in union with him and in unity with one another. Question. Read John chapter 11 verses 51 and 52 and Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. What event in the life of Jesus is the foundation of unity among us as Seventh-day Adventists? John chapter 11 verses 51 and 52. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And Ephesians 1 beginning at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that, in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. Now this he, that's Caiaphas, did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad, John eleven fifty one and 52. How strange that God used Caiaphas to explain the meaning of Jesus' death even though Caiaphas did not know what he was doing in condemning Jesus to die. Nor did the priest have any idea of just how profound his statement was. Caiaphas thought that he was making a political statement only. John, though, used it to reveal a foundational truth about what the substitutionary death of Jesus meant for all of God's faithful people, who would one day be gathered together into one. Whatever else we believe as Seventh-day Adventists, whatever message we alone are proclaiming, the foundation of our unity exists in our common acceptance of Christ's death in our behalf. And furthermore, we also experience this unity in Christ through baptism. Galatians 3.26 and 27 reads, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is another bond that we Adventists commonly share, as it symbolizes our faith in Christ. We have a common Father, thus we are all sons and daughters of God, and we have a common Saviour, in whose death and resurrection we are baptized. As Romans 6 verse 3 and 4 reads, And do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So to finish today. Whatever cultural, social, ethnic and political differences exist among us as Seventh-day Adventists, why should our common faith in Jesus transcend all such divisions?
Monday, November 26, Ministry of Reconciliation Our world is certainly known for its disorder, troubles, wars and conflicts. All these factors affect our lives at the personal, community and national levels. At times it appears our entire lives are in conflict, but disunity and disorder will not prevail forever. God is on a mission to bring about cosmic unity. Whereas sin has resulted in disharmony, God's eternal plan for reconciliation brings peace and holiness. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, Paul puts forward the principles that show how Christ acted in order to bring peace among believers. Let's read that. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Through his death on the cross, Jesus made both Jews and Gentiles one people and destroyed the ethnic and religious barriers that separated them. If Christ was able to do this with Jews and Gentiles in the first century, how much more can he still bring down any racial, ethnic and cultural barriers and walls that divide people within our church today? And from this starting point, we can reach out to the world. Question in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21, Paul states that in Christ we are a new creation, reconciled to God. What then is our ministry in this world? What differences could we be making in our communities as a united church today? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. As God's new creation, believers receive a crucial ministry, a threefold ministry of reconciliation. One, our church is composed of believers who were once alienated from God, but through the saving grace of Christ's sacrifice, have now been united to God by the Holy Spirit. We are the remnant called to proclaim an end-time message to the world. 
Our ministry is to invite those who are still alienated from God to be reconciled to God and join us in our mission. Two, the church also is God's people reconciled to one another. To be united to Christ means we are united to one another. This is not just a lofty ideal. It must be a visible reality. Reconciliation to one another, peace and harmony among brothers and sisters, is an unmistakable witness to the world that Jesus Christ is our Saviour and Redeemer. As it says in John 13.35, By this will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And three, through this ministry of reconciliation, the Church tells the universe that God's plan of redemption is true and powerful. The great controversy is about God and His character. Inasmuch as the Church cultivates unity and reconciliation, the universe sees the working out of God's eternal wisdom. As we read in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tuesday, November 27, Practical Unity. In 1902, Ellen G. White wrote in The Signs of the Times on July 16, What Christ was in his life on this earth, that every Christian is to be. He is our example, not only in his spotless purity, but in his patience, gentleness, and winsomeness of disposition. End of quote. These words are reminiscent of Paul's appeal to the Philippians in Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Question. Read Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 through to chapter 5 verse 2 and Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 17. And then answer these two questions. In what areas of our lives in particular are we invited to show our allegiance to Jesus? How are we to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus in our public lives? First of all, Ephesians chapter 4 beginning at verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labour, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. 
Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And then Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked, when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, Malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. But Christ is all and in all. Therefore, As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. There are many other passages of Scripture that invite Christians to follow the example of Jesus and be living witnesses of God's grace to others. We also are invited to seek the welfare of others. Matthew seven twelve says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. To bear each other's burdens, it tells us in Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfil the law of Christ. To live in simplicity and to focus on inward spirituality instead of outward display. We read in Matthew 16 verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
and 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And to follow healthful living practices, we read in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 reads, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honourable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. How often do we underestimate the impact of Christian character upon those who watch us? The patience manifested in moments of annoyance, a disciplined life in the midst of tension and conflicts, a gentle spirit in response to impatience and harsh words are marks of the Spirit of Jesus we are invited to emulate. As Seventh-day Adventists witness together in a world that misunderstands the character of God, we become a power for good and for God's glory. As representatives of Christ, believers are to be known not only for their moral rectitude, but also for their practical interest in the welfare of others. If our religious experience is genuine, it will reveal itself and have an impact in the world. A unified body of believers revealing the character of Christ to the world will, indeed, be a powerful witness. And so to finish today, what kind of witness do you present to others? What would one find in your life that would make them want to follow Jesus? Wednesday, November 28. Unity amid diversity. In Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15, the Apostle Paul addresses issues that deeply were dividing the church at Rome. His response to these issues was to invite the Romans to show tolerance and patience for one another and not divide the church over these concerns. What can we learn from his counsel? Question, read Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through to 6. What issues of conscience were causing church members in Rome to judge and not fellowship with one another? Romans 14, beginning at verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. 
One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. It is very likely that these matters had to do with Jewish ceremonial impurity. According to Paul, there were disputes over doubtful things, he said in verse 1, indicating that they were not matters of salvation, but matters of opinion, that should have been left up to individual consciences, as he said in verse 5. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. These disputes were first over the type of food eaten. Eating animals forbidden in Leviticus 11 was not the problem addressed by Paul here. There is no evidence that early Christians began eating pork or other unclean animals during Paul's time, and we know that Peter did not eat any such food, as we read in Acts 10.14. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Also, that the weak ate only vegetables, as it said in verse 2 of chapter 14, and that the controversy also involved beverages, as we read in verses 17 and 21, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. These indicate that the concerns focused on ceremonial impurity. This is further evidence for the word unclean, koinos, used in Romans 14.14, 14, which read, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That word is used in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to impure animals, not the unclean animals of Leviticus 11. Apparently, there were some people in Roman community who would not eat at fellowship meals because they were not convinced that the food was adequately prepared and had not been sacrificed to idols. The same goes for the observation of some days. This did not refer to the weekly observance of the Sabbath, since we know Paul observed it regularly, as we read in Acts chapter 13 and verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down, at Acts chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day he went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. And Acts chapter 17, verse 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This is likely a reference to the various Jewish feast days or fast days. 
Paul's intent in these verses is to urge tolerance for those who are sincere and conscientious in the observance of these rituals as long as they did not think of them as a means of salvation. Unity among Christians manifests itself in patience and forbearance when we do not always agree on points, especially when they are not essential to our faith. And so to finish today, in class, ask this question. Is there anything that we believe and practice as Seventh-day Adventists that all who claim to be Adventists need not believe and adhere to? Thursday, November 29, Unity in Mission Contrast the mood of the disciples during the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, verse 24, with the one they had shortly before the Pentecost experience in Acts chapter 1, verses 14, and chapter 2, verses 1 and 46. What made such a difference in their lives? First of all, we read Acts chapter 22, and verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And Acts chapter 1 verse 14 reads, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. In Acts chapter 1 verse 14 and Acts chapter 2 verse 46, the phrase with one accord also means persevered with one mind. This came as a result of their being together in one place, seeking in prayer the fulfilment of Jesus' promise to send them the Comforter. As they waited, it would have been easy for them to begin to criticise one another. Some could have pointed to Peter's denial of Jesus in John, chapter 18, verses 15 to 18 and 25 to 27, and to Thomas's doubting Jesus' resurrection in John twenty twenty-five. They could have remembered John and James's request to receive the most powerful positions in Jesus' kingdom in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 41, or that Matthew was a former despised tax collector in Matthew 9, verse 9. However, as it says in the Acts of the Apostles, page 37, These days of preparation were days of deep heart-searching. The disciples felt their spiritual need and cried to the Lord for the holy unction that was to fit them for the work of soul-saving. They did not ask for a blessing for themselves merely. They were weighted with the burden of the salvation of souls. They realised that the gospel was to be carried to the world and they claimed the power that Christ had promised. End of quote. The fellowship between the disciples and the intensity of their prayers prepared them for this momentous experience at Pentecost. As they drew nearer to God and put aside their personal differences, 
the disciples were prepared by the Holy Spirit to become the fearless and bold witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. They knew Jesus had forgiven their many shortcomings, and this gave them courage to press on ahead. They knew what Jesus had done for them in their lives. They knew the promise of salvation found in him, and thus, on page 48 of the Acts of the Apostles, ambition of the believers was to reveal the likeness of Christ's character and to labour for the enlargement of his kingdom. End of quote. No wonder the Lord was able to do powerful things through them. What a lesson for us as a church today. And so to finish today, it's always so easy to find things in other people's lives that are wrong. How can we learn to put aside the mistakes of others, all for the greater cause of doing God's will in a united church? Friday, November 30. The following quote helps reveal how the early church, united in Christ, was able to maintain unity despite differences among them and thus be a powerful witness to the world. And it comes from the Holy Spirit and the Church in Angel Manuel Rodriguez's edition of Message, Mission and Unity of the Church, pages 321 and 322, and it's written by Dennis Fortin, the author of this quarter's lessons. Within the Church, Scripture illustrates how the Holy Spirit guided the early Church in its decision-making process. This is done in at least three closely interconnected ways. Revelations, for example, the Spirit told the people what to do, Cornelius, Ananias, Philip, and perhaps the casting of lots. Scripture? The church reached a conclusion in which the scripture was used, and consensus. The spirit worked from within the community, almost imperceptibly, creating a consensus through dialogue and study, at the end of which the church realised that the spirit was working within it. It appears that when faced with cultural, doctrinal and theological controversies among the community of believers, the Holy Spirit worked through consensus in its decision-making process. In this process, we see the active role of the community of believers and not just its leaders, and the importance of prayer for discernment. The guidance of the Holy Spirit is sensed throughout the community's understanding of the Word of God, the experience of the community and its needs, and through the experience of its leaders as they minister. Various church decisions were made through a process guided by the Holy Spirit in which scripture, prayer and experience were elements of theological reflection. End of quote. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. 1. In class, go over your answer to Wednesday's question about how we decide on which teachings and practices are essential for us as Seventh-day Adventists and which aren't. 2. How are we to relate to Christians in other denominations who, as we do, believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus? So, to summarise this week's lesson. 
the most convincing proof of unity is for brothers and sisters to love each other as Jesus did. The forgiveness of our sins and the salvation we share in common as Adventists are the best bonds of our fellowship. In Christ, we can thus show the world our unity and witness of our common faith. We are called to do nothing less. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Love is the Best Medicine and it's by Andrew McChesney from Adventist Mission. A 30-year-old woman was admitted with a bad case of pneumonia to Blantyre Adventist Hospital in Malawi in Africa. When she didn't improve with antibiotics, missionary physician Tiffany Priester ordered an HIV test. The results came back positive. She had full-blown AIDS. Priester explained to the family that it usually takes three weeks to treat pneumonia and there was a 50% chance that she would make it. But then the woman began to suffer kidney problems and her chances of survival plummeted to 10%. Priester told the family that there wasn't much hope. We believe in God, a family member replied. We believe in miracles. Let's pray. Surrounded by the family, Priester prayed for a cure and put the patient on a ventilation machine. The woman's kidneys shut down 24 hours later. All hope seemed lost. But then she began to recover. A few weeks later, she walked out of the hospital. Medicine has its limits, Priester said. The hospital does what it can do, and the Lord does the rest. Priester a U.S. cardiologist worked for five years in Blantyre, the second-largest city in Malawi, with a population of about one million. Blantyre Adventist Hospital, which employs six missionary doctors, two missionary dentists and seven Malawian doctors, did not have a cardiologist for the decade before she arrived in 2011, a common problem in a country with only one medical doctor for every 88,000 people. Priester's reason for mission is John 13, verse 35, where Jesus says, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. One day a Malawian woman complained that she awoke with a heart pounding every night about midnight. Tests came back normal, and other doctors might have written off the case as the result of bad dreams. But that day I think the Holy Spirit prompted me to ask more, Priester said. Priester learned that the patient had started having sleeping problems after meeting a self-professed prophet who had warned her that she would be raped at midnight. Priester asked the woman whether the man or God was stronger. Put your trust in God, she said. You were the first doctor to tell me that God is strong, the woman replied. This, said Priester, pictured left, is what it means to love one another, making an extra effort to provide physical, emotional and spiritual healing. Sometimes it's the small things that set us apart, she said. 
And as a physician myself who served as a missionary physician in Hong Kong in the 1970s for four years, I can recommend this story as giving an illustration of how God works in mysterious ways and that He is always there. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department, and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.